Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hello, this is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. This installment is about the article, Effect of a Pharmacist-Led Task Force to Reduce Opioid Prescribing in the Emergency Department. With me is Dr. Nicole Aquisto and Dr. Rachel Schult, both with the Department of Pharmacy and Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center in New York State. Let's begin our conversation by having each of you uh, talk a bit about uh, your role in the emergency medicine department at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Nicole, would you please start? Sure. My name is Nicola Quisto. I'm the emergency medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at the University of Rochester, and I've been um, in this position for about 13 years at the U of R. Good. Rachel? Hi, my name is Rachel Schultz. I'm a toxicology clinical pharmacy specialist, and I mostly work on our toxicology consult service, but I also spend a lot of time practicing in the emergency department as one of the pharmacists down there. This term, uh, toxicology specialist, is uh, is uh, of interest. Uh, tell us a bit more the significance of that. Well, I was uh, trained in toxicology. I did a clinical toxicology fellowship, and so I'm actually a board-certified toxicologist, and I am a consultant for our poison center up here. We have a bedside consultation team that's mostly led by our medical toxicologists. So I was hired to be a toxicology pharmacy specialist, which a lot of times is about helping the team, helping with education, seeing patients with the team, and then also sort of optimizing our um, antidote usage. Sure. Nicole, it'll help listeners uh, if you would discuss uh, some operational facets of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Rochester. Sure. Um, Our emergency department is a a pretty large, busy emergency department. We have about 120,000 patient visits a year. Our emergency department technically is 120 beds, um, but we all know that that, that's a plus. Um, We have uh, an adult emergency department with a separate critical care area. Um, We have a pediatric emergency department within our um, ED and also a 23-hour observation unit and a um, psychiatry area. We are a level one trauma center. We're a comprehensive stroke center, and we're a tertiary care center as well. The model that we have um, related to the pharmacist role in the emergency department is that we do have um, a team of pharmacists that now cover about 19 hours a day um, in the ED. So we provide coverage um, about six to seven in the morning um, until about midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And we do provide a lot of clinical services and, and pharmacotherapy consultative services to our providers. We have a large direct bedside care role and we um, do prospective order review, um, but have support from our critical care team. Rachel, uh, could you give listeners a brief overview of the program you developed to address opioid use issues in your emergency department? Yeah, so uh, we were initially tasked with reducing opioid use by the chair of our emergency department, um, and he kind of left this open-ended to us as to how we wanted to accomplish this. 
So what we ended up doing is that we put together an interdisciplinary team uh, that included people really from all different disciplines within the department. So physicians, advanced practice providers, nurses, pharmacists, and then also from all areas of the ED, including the adult ED, pediatric, our observation unit as well. And really, um, when we started meeting, we had a goal of reducing our ED orders as well as our discharge prescriptions for opioids by about 30%. Nicole, what would you add? So once we had our interdisciplinary group formed, we started um, meeting every other week to really try to figure out how do we reach this goal of reducing opioid orders and prescriptions by 30%. And our goal was to do this within a year's time. We knew that there would be a lot of um, preparation for this. And we started by pulling some of our current state data and really discussing from the providers and the nurses' perspective, you know, what their anecdotal opioid use was. And we did recognize, even just from our roles in the emergency department, we did recognize that a lot of patients were treated first with an opioid for even mild or moderate pain disease states, and that it was very rare that we provided non-opioid analgesia, even like acetaminophen or ibuprofen, along with opioids or first, and we didn't provide a lot of adjunctive therapy. So what we really did is we started to think through that and really focus the development of our guidelines on appropriate use of opioids. And then we decided to target a couple specific areas related to moderate pain disease states where we developed more specific pathways looking at how to um, incorporate multimodal non-opioid therapy first in a stepwise progression before opioid rescue. We did incorporate some other pieces to the program as well related to naloxone distribution and trying to encourage um, opioid use disorder um, treatment as well. But as the program evolved, and and we'll talk about through um, this interview as well, the focus really was on appropriate opioid use and optimizing multimodal pain management. Uh, Rachel, what would you add? Yeah, just one other thing is that uh, we tried to use a lot of whatever data we that was already available regarding different programs that had already aimed to reduce uh, opioid use. Um, and so we sort of gathered data, you know, looking at listservs and asking a lot of our colleagues if anybody had been a part of different programs that aim to reduce opioid use. And especially one that I would mention is the um, Colorado Alternatives to Opioids. And that, and along with some other programs that we looked at, all looked at, you know, targeting different disease states and how to effectively um, provide a stepwise approach to their management of analgesics in those cases. We decided to have our EM pharmacy group sort of tackle this as well. And so we had those as a baseline, but also had our emergency medicine pharmacists do a pretty thorough literature review on each of these disease states to kind of determine what would be best as far as evidence-based and also taking into consideration our emergency department to develop our own pathways. And then it was really important to our task force in particular that we have opioid rescue if necessary, because we really didn't want to we knew that this was never going to be a zero opioid ED that, you know, we obviously are, a, you know, a trauma center. It's very challenging to avoid opioids and trauma patients. And um, just in general, patients presenting with severe pain, we wanted to make sure that opioids were still an option for them. Nicole, let me ask, what were the key steps then in operationalizing this approach that the two of you have described here? 
So as we um, worked on our development, so we continued to meet every other week, we really focused on developing guidelines for appropriate use, the pathways, as, as Rachel mentioned, and some of the other materials. We did realize that we were going to need um, some additional resources for our providers, such as talking points, and for the nurses as well, to be able to have appropriate pain management conversations with patients. We also worked on an educational campaign, and we decided to really implement this in a big bang approach. We developed um, materials for the patient waiting rooms and triage areas so that patients were aware that we're concerned about pain management, but we're also concerned about safe pain management and that we're a smart um, opioid ED. As I mentioned, we worked on the development of talking points for providers and for nurses, and we did an educational campaign where we went to all of these groups um, and we presented the materials, the goal of the program, and our anticipated rollout to, again, all of these groups and their faculty meetings. And we also provided all the materials available both um, through email and on our um, electronic internet site, um, and as well as printed copies of the materials at each of the workstations in the ED as preparation for go live. We did develop an electronic competency program as well where we incorporated the different guidelines and materials that we developed along with some educational slide sets as well so that providers could attest that they reviewed the materials and that we could also use for onboarding of new employees, both in, as providers, nurses, um, or pharmacists. And that's really what we, what we built in um, as far as the point of our um, implementation. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the focus of your article, of course, is on uh, evaluating the program. Rachel, could you tell us about uh, the methodology uh, for this assessment? Sure. Yeah, what we ended up doing with this is that we split it into three different time points. So we knew that this opioid epidemic was kind of on the front of everybody's minds through all of these time points and that there may have been some decrease in opioid use just by sort of, you know, clinical conversations going on and the media attention to the opioid epidemic. And so what we really wanted to do was make sure that we were um, finding results that were based on our interventions and not just a trend from outside resources. The rationale for using our different groups is that the task force started meeting in February of 2017, and so we looked starting in May of 2016 up to January of 2017 and called that our pre-implementation group. During the time that our task force was meeting and sort of the education started, we did that as our mid-implementation group because we felt that everybody in the ED sort of knew that this task force was meeting and, you know, knew that there were going to be recommendations coming out about how to reduce opioid use and so felt that this may also be another reason why people would potentially be reducing their opioid use and prescribing. And then the post-implementation group really looked at, you know, by the time we were completing education to sort of evaluating the program after it had been rolled out. And the way that we looked at this was to actually pull the orders and the discharge prescriptions from the electronic medical record. And we would sort of total up the numbers per month and then try to standardize it based on the number of patient visits that we had for that month, just to make sure that we were looking at, you know, comparing apples to apples and not a month that had, you know, a lot more patient visits than another. And that might explain higher numbers of opioid orders or discharge prescriptions. Okay, so that was uh, the methodology, well thought out. I'd like each of you, starting with you, Nicole, to comment then on the key findings from this assessment. 
as Rachel mentioned, we looked at our, our key findings a couple ways. Just looking from the pre-implementation period of our program, which was January 2017 before the task force convened, to January 2018, we did have an overall reduction of opioid orders in the emergency department from 246 to 90 orders per thousand visits, which was about a 64% reduction. And in ED prescriptions, um, we did see a decrease in 85 to 37 prescriptions per thousand visits which again was about a um, 56% reduction. Now we did an interrupted time series analysis to really look at, um, as Rachel mentioned, you know, we recognized that there would be additional effects um, that, to help our cause really um, related to the discussions that the task force was having with members of the ED team and also from the media and the national epidemic issue. That with the interrupted time series, what the, the, the point was, was really to look at the immediate effect of our program rollout and then the sustainability of that effect. And what we did find is in looking at the ED orders specifically, we did see an immediate effect independently related to our program implementation, although the sustainability wasn't significant. However, in the ED prescription, we did see an immediate independent effect and also sustainability um, from our program. Now, in talking about sustainability, it's just talking really about the direct effect and sustainability of the program as an independent factor. But what we can say is that we have seen um, our results continue. So even though our nadir of orders um, was seen in that, that original um, post-implementation month, we have remained um, at about 120 opioid orders per thousand patients all the way um, until September of 2019. And similarly, for discharged patients, um, our previous um, numbers in January 2018 was 37 um, orders per thousand patient visits. And we've seen um, the same number even in September 2019. So we've really seen um, sustainability of the program, at least an over 50% reduction from those original January 2017 numbers. Mm -hmm. Rachel? Just a couple extra things to add. Another one of our goals with the program was to reduce our hydromorphone and oxycodone use because we know that those agents are associated with more euphoria. And we were able to identify um, a decrease in the percent of total opioids of these agents that were used. That was statistically significant. Additionally, we attempted to reduce our combination product use, and this is really just in order to try and optimize the acetaminophen use in these patients instead of using, you know, an opioid with acetaminophen, really making sure that patients have acetaminophen scheduled during the an episode of acute pain. Um, and so we were also able to show a reduction in combination product use. Uh, we had about a 20% decrease in the number of tablets that were prescribed at discharge, which was statistically significant. So a big push of ours was to make sure that we were not providing more tablets than would be necessary for about a three-day supply in any patient. And we were able to show that the um, number of tablets prescribed per Rx decreased from about 15 to 12. Nicole, um, what can you say about patient outcomes in terms of appropriate pain management after implementing the program? Because we had a really large data set, we struggled with really how to evaluate this. And what we did is we um, did look at Prescani satisfaction survey scores. Um, although we know that, that it is limited because of the amount of patients that fill out these surveys, and we found that only about 2% of patients filled out the surveys. 
And also that we know there is some controversy related to asking these um, questions related to pain in these satisfaction surveys. But what we did find is in the question that asked how well your pain was controlled in the ED, um, the percentage of patients that responded very good or good um, was 71% in the pre-implementation group and 63% in the post-implementation group, which was less. But we're not really sure the clinical impact of that 8% difference, especially in such a small percentage of patients. However, even though we did see the reduction there, um, we did find that there was no difference in how patients felt that the staph sensitivity to pain was. Nicole, your published report reflects data through May 2018. Can you give us a sense of your experience since that date, both in terms of refinements to the program and its impact? Yeah, so the program, we've made a lot of um, changes from an organizational standpoint that this program has actually helped to, to progress. So some of the things we did immediately after the implementation of our program were that we um, looked at some additional areas for electronic optimization. So we did um, update different order sets, and we did a few of these beforehand, um, but we really kind of did more of a deep dive into our, our electronic medical record to make sure that all of our order sets, um, all of our different pathways and preference lists were really updated um, to, to uh, be used as a complement to the pathway. Um, we also started for sustainability, um, we started producing an opioid, a smart opioid um, ED newsletter to really kind of keep this at the forefront. Um, we highlighted different topics related to the opioid epidemic and our data um, for providers. We did send this out, providers and nurses, and we did send this out to the entire emergency department and pharmacy department as well. Since then, there's been a, a large organizational change that's happened. So with our work that we've done with the ED task force, Rachel and I were recruited to work on the organizational opioid task force, and we had leadership roles in the prevention um, and treatment arms of this group. And we also had a lot of involvement in all four arms of this group, which is prevention, identification of opioid use disorder, treatment of opioid use disorder, and a pediatric group that was working in parallel. Because of um, our work that we've done in the ED, we were able to take a lot of our materials as a foundation to develop um, a program and develop um, a lot of guidelines for the entire um, organization. Along with that, too, we recognize that our focus has slightly changed. So we've realized that we've been able to create some culture change related to opioid prescribing in the ED specifically. And we switched gears to try to focus on some other areas of the program that weren't necessarily prioritized at the beginning. So Rachel and I have done work with the ED um, to work on naloxone distribution and to work on initiating buprenorphine for opioid withdrawal and opioid use disorder in the ED since the original implementation of our program. I'd appreciate comments from both of you. If you have any advice for others who are engaged in opioid stewardship based on your experience with, with this program. Nicole? You know, based on our experience, having an interdisciplinary team of really all, of everyone that really touches opioid stewardship is important. So having the providers involved, nurses involved, quality um, and uh, IT support, um, it's important to have a champion also in each of these areas so that each individual um, interdisciplinary group can really see that this is an important issue for their individual specialty as well. 
as far as implementation, what we recognized is that it was important for it to be multifaceted. We had to, as champions of this program, we had to go and promote this program to the different groups and also to make sure that we had a plan for sustainability and how to continue to engage people um, after the implementation. And I think one of the important things is data is king. So being able to have data to show progress, to both celebrate successes, but also to identify places of regression and where we might need to further optimize is very important. Rachel, what would you add? Yeah, I agree with everything that Nicole said. We were really fortunate to have great buy-in from our provider and nursing groups. I think everybody was really appreciative of the work that was done by our entire group as far as trying to make this as easy as possible for everybody. With regard to sustainability, I think uh, from our standpoint, we really tried going forward, even with keeping this at the forefront of everybody's mind, it was really how can we continue to optimize this program to make sure that people are still getting something out of it, even one, two years down the road. So that's really what we've tried to focus on even since that point, and hopefully that has been something that's been worthwhile in our efforts. Well, Nicole and Rachel, uh, thank you very much for taking time to uh, discuss your important paper in AJHP. I appreciate it. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. I've been speaking with Dr. Nicole Aquisto and Dr. Rachel Schult with the University of Rochester Medical Center, associated with the Department of Pharmacy and Department of Emergency Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.